You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I missed it. Well, Actually, I didn't miss it. I knew about it. I saw other people's tweets about it, but I failed to tweet about it myself or write about it or talk about it on my show. Last Monday, September 23rd, was Bisexual Visibility Day, and I didn't mark the occasion. I failed to post an I see you, your valid tweet. And this, according to several people who took the time to monitor my Twitter feed all of last Monday and then promptly send me an email at midnight, this is proof that I am biphobic. Never mind all the bisexual people I talk to on this show. Never mind all the people I've talked into identifying as bisexual on this show. I mean, how many times have I talked with someone who didn't think they could identify as bi because they're not equally attracted to both or all genders? So many times. Now, I haven't always been perfect on bisexual issues. Lord knows. Gay ones either, truth be told. But bisexuals have always been visible around here. Or audible around here. Anyway, seen and heard. But I didn't tweet. I didn't mark the occasion. But you know what else I didn't tweet about last year? Pan Visibility Day, National Coming Out Day, World AIDS Day, LGBT History Month, Lesbian Visibility Day, International Lesbian Day, not to be confused with Lesbian Visibility Day, International Non-Binary People's Day. The Day of Silence, Transgender Awareness Week, Asexual Awareness Week, Bisexual Health Awareness Month, Spirit Day. That's when people wear purple on the third Thursday of October to show support for LGBT youth and combat bullying. Not to be confused with Purple Day, which is when people wear purple on March 26th to raise awareness for epilepsy. Also didn't tweet about International Drag Day, Aromantic Spectrum Awareness Week, Intersex Awareness Day, Transparent Day, which does not celebrate Amazon's groundbreaking show Transparent, but the love transgender parents have for their children be they cis or trans. Okay, if failing to tweet about BVD makes me biphobic, by that same standard, I'm panphobic, lesbianphobic, non-binaryphobic, homophobic, spiritphobic, and Harvey Milkphobic. Harvey Milk Day, observed in California on May 22nd, never once mentioned on my Twitter feed. There are a lot of holy days of obligation and holy months and weeks on the queer calendar now. Reminds me of Catholicism, except instead of being expected to show up in church for Palm Sunday and All Saints Day and the Assumption of the Holy Virgin, which is when Jesus's mom floated up into the sky and because she's magic, her lungs didn't explode. Whether she was wearing purple at the time, we do not know. Except instead of being obligated to show up in church, you're obligated to show up on Twitter. Showing up on Twitter for a hot second is a lot easier than showing up at church for mass for a whole miserable hour. But you know, one of the reasons I'm not an observant Catholic anymore is that there was just too much to observe. Who could keep track or keep up? Also not a believer anymore because I don't believe in flying virgins. I do, however, believe in all of these days and all of these weeks and all of these months and all forms and varieties of visibility. I believe in bisexual visibility in particular, which is why I'm always promoting it around here which includes nudging people in opposite-sex relationships to make a point of being out about their bisexuality. But I failed to tweet about it myself, so I'm going to make up for that by reading a couple of other people's tweets. Not mine again. I didn't tweet, of course, as Angela and Marty and Denise wrote in to point out. But Pete did. Pete Buttigieg, it takes courage to be visible, especially as our country grapples with the crisis of belonging that disproportionately affects the LGBTQ plus community. I want everyone celebrating Bi Visibility Day to know that we see you, we are with you, and you belong. 
completely agree with Pete. Also agree with Penny Lane Gay, who tweeted, not all bisexuals are vampires, but all vampires are bisexual. Hashtag bisexuality visibility day. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. The show is twice as long and has no ads. Dr. Morgan Philbin joins us to discuss the results of a new study that she conducted that found that bisexual women smoke a lot more pot than just about everybody else, including bisexual men. Dr. Morgan Philbin joins us for the Magnum. Hi, Dan. I'm a bisexual woman in my mid-50s, living in eastern Washington. My parents exposed me to pornographic movies from a young age. As a result, I've always had an active fantasy life that was also bound up in shame, and so I've kept my fantasies private. Recently, though, I met a man who seemed perfect for me. He had a charismatic personality, seemed kind and generous, and was into sexual domination and role play. You can imagine how delighted I was to encounter him in the conservative city where I live. Sex had never been so exciting. For the first time, I didn't need to indulge in my private fantasies to achieve orgasm. And I especially liked how, apart from sex, he treated me as an equal. After five or six months, though, things began to change. Twice he asked if I would have sex with a friend of his while he watched. After I declined, he tried to make it happen anyway, inviting these men to kiss and touch me. Both times I left the scene. Because I liked him and our sex life so much, I forgave him, but after the second time, told him that it must never happen again. I told him that while I'm open to threesomes, I have no interest in being sexualized by his friends and so would not consent to sex with any of them. Around this time, he began showing a side of himself that I hadn't seen before, a hostile, belligerent, nasty-tempered side. When I told him I needed a break from him to try to figure things out, he came that very night to the concert where he knew I would be and approached me. When I told him I was upset to see him there, he went on the attack. I dumped his ass and haven't seen him since. I'm a strong, successful woman and don't like it when anyone tries to control me. This aversion is one reason I haven't sought out a dominant lover before. I worry that my submitting sexually will make my partner think they can control me in other areas as well. I also worry about my safety. But, having had a taste of BDSM, I want to continue exploring this aspect of my sexuality. Dan, do you have advice for how I can safely do so? I've recommended it before. I'm going to recommend it again. Get your hands on Playing Well with Others, your field guide to discovering, exploring, and navigating the kink, leather, and BDSM communities in paperback by Lee Harrington and frequent guest on the Savage Lovecast, Molina Williams. It is a great introduction for newbies, for people who are just beginning to consider exploring their interests in kink or BDSM, and you would benefit from reading it. Even people who've been doing BDSM for a while and perhaps flying blind or making it up as they go along or doing it with just one partner would benefit from reading Playing Well with Others. So you had this not great experience with this guy, the first Dom you've ever gotten to interact with sexually. 
he had an interest in seeing you with other men. He thought it was his right and he was wrong. Absolutely a thousand percent wrong. Thought it was his right to give other men permission to touch you when you had explicitly told him that that was a hard limit for you and you didn't want other men touching you. And you did absolutely the right thing by dumping the motherfucker and good for you. You didn't allow him to manipulate you with bullshit about how if you were really a sub, you wouldn't argue with him about this. If you were really a sub, you would submit to his demands and his desires. And there are a lot of people out there, a lot of women out there particularly, who have really negative experiences early in their explorations of BDSM because some asshole manipulates them in that way, leverages their desire to submit against their limits, and their comfort levels. And then people will end up, women will end up engaging in BDSM behaviors, engaging in sexual behaviors to please their dom that are very displeasing or upsetting or even traumatizing to them. That didn't happen in this case. You stood up to that. Perhaps he didn't go there. Perhaps he didn't attempt to leverage your desire to be submissive to him in that way that other shitty fake doms have done to, to other women which is not to give him credit. sounds like he was a jerk when he told other men after you had already told him that this was not okay with you, that they could go ahead and put their hands on you. That was the end of this relationship. All right. So this relationship is in the past. Now, what do you do? I don't think you deny yourself these experiences that are intensely pleasurable for you. You want to experience more BDSM. You want to be with a guy who is a better dom than this guy. You know, a lot of people can have a negative experience with vanilla sex and then they don't turn around and say, well, obviously I can never have vanilla sex again because I had this negative experience with vanilla sex. Now I can only have kinky sex. But people will have a negative experience with kinky sex and then walk away saying, well, obviously the problem is kinky sex. I can never have kinky sex again. So it's only vanilla sex from here on out for me. I'm not being willfully obtuse. When you are doing BDSM, you have to make yourself vulnerable to another person in a way that you don't necessarily have to make yourself quite as vulnerable as when you're doing just vanilla sex. You're allowing someone to tie you up, for instance. That requires a greater degree of vulnerability than just rolling around naked with somebody in a bed. It's easier to get up and go if you're just rolling around with someone naked in the bed. If you're tied to that bed, obviously it's a lot harder to get up and go. So if something requires you to make yourself more vulnerable, you have to do a little bit more due diligence before you allow yourself to be made vulnerable in that way. You have to determine whether this is someone that you can trust. And the place you do that is in the organized kink BDSM community. Find out where the munches are near you. If you don't want to go to the munches in the city where you live because you don't want to run into your accountant or you don't want to run into your neighbor's adult son – Go to a munch in a nearby city where you will see people interacting. And a munch is a kink community event that's usually during the day and it's at a time and in a place where there will be no play. It's not a play party. It's not a dungeon party. It's a conversation. It's a coffee clutch where people talk about BDSM. They talk about other things. You get to know people in the kink community and you'll get a sense of who the good and trustworthy people are. And who the not-so-good and untrustworthy people are. The not-so-good and untrustworthy people tend to get exiled from events like lunches. They tend to get forced out of the organized kink community. It's not a perfect system. There are certainly people who've been abused by those they met at lunches and in the organized kink community. But you are less likely to be abused by someone you meet in those forums 
because there is a kind of control there. There is a kind of vetting process that goes on. And because it's not sex, it's not play, you get to interact with somebody and get a feel for them as a human being in a social interaction before you take it private or play with them. So read the book, Playing Well with Others, find the organized kink community nearest you that jobs best with your comfort level about some degree of public exposure and go you're in your 50s you have these fantasies you've had a taste of how awesome bdsm sex can be and it'll be even better with somebody that you can really feel that you can trust and those guys are out there go find one hi dan i'm a straight this woman on the west coast and i'm in a very interesting situation and I just want to get your opinion on it. On LinkedIn, two weeks ago, I received a message that they wanted me to financially dominate them. And they left me an email in the LinkedIn message to say, like, reach out if you're interested. And so I'm a very experience-driven individual. And so I emailed them to sort of assuming it was a joke. And I just was, like, confused by it. And, and it was a fake LinkedIn profile. The guy responded, and he's very serious about this. Basically, he wants to send me money every week. And he, obviously he knows who I am. Apparently we went to high school together and which is on the other side of the country. Um, but he won't reveal his identity. And apparently it's just a way that he's able to relinquish power. And, and, and it's something that he sort of, he refers to me as, you know, goddess. And he, I, I just don't know. Have you heard of this kink before? I am up for new experiences and I'm intrigued by the idea, but I also am pretty sub misses myself naturally so playing this sort of dominant role is unusual to me but he insists that i don't have to change myself or i he just wants to send me money which like legitimately that's it although i am concerned that this will probably lead to some other expectations even though he's very open to like talking about it all beforehand i guess the main concern is that he knows who i am i don't know who he is and so that feels like a very different power dynamic intrinsically um, just because of the potential for a blackmail or whatever in the future. You know, I would never out this individual. I think if I'm going to move forward, I'm going to have to know his identity. And yeah, I don't know. I'm just curious about if you've ever heard of this kink and if you have any advice for me. Findom is a kink that really has exploded in the last 10 years. I think it tracks in an interesting way with the financial crisis. People eroticize their fears, mass cultural events, enter into our erotic subconscious, all of us are sort of collective erotic subconscious, and then are crapped out as sort of weird fetishes and kinks. You know, you look at S&M porn pre-Second World War, and it was kind of about the class system. A lot of S&M porn was about manor houses, about the mistress and the master of the house, about stable boys and French maids. And then after the Second World War, BDSM, the iconography of it shifted to be much more about fascism, class system, manor houses, not so much. Jackboots, leather officer hats, riding crops, much more after the mass cultural trauma of the Second World War and how that sort of fed into our collective subconscious. And just watching the Finn Dom Finn sub thing explode over the last 10 years. It's hard for me not to make a pulling it out of my ass association with the 2008 financial crisis, that some part of that entered into our collective mass erotic subconscious and emerged on the other side as this kink around taking advantage of another person financially, demanding 
tribute, demanding money from them, exploiting them in this way, or, or, or a desire to be exploited in this way. There are a lot of findoms who are working the Twitter corner. You can get on Twitter and find a lot of findoms, male and female findoms. Now, most of the male findoms are financially dominating other males. And there are examples out there of people demanding, findoms demanding from their subs, more than the subs can reasonably give. There was a case in Florida where a woman got an older man who was her fin sub to sign over his condo to her and wound up homeless. Not the way a responsible findom would behave. If you look at a lot of the findom, fin sub stuff going on on Twitter, it's 10 bucks here, it's 20 bucks there, it's somebody picking up a check for a meal or a new pair of shoes. It's not signing over condos, it's not people bankrupting themselves to give all they have to their findom. All right, that's sort of the findom, fin sub overview. This situation, you have clocked it perfectly. There is potential for blackmail here. Not you blackmailing him, but him blackmailing you. He knows who you are. You don't know who he is. That puts you not in a position to dominate him. That puts you in a position where he has power and leverage over you that you don't have over him. It would have to be if you're going to enter into a findom, fin sub thing with this person from high school that you don't remember or barely know, kind of a mad pact, mutual assured destruction. You know who he is. He knows who you are. You're both doing this kinky, crazy thing. It's a kind of sex work, fin domination, because there is an exchange of money. I don't think it's sex work per se, but it is perceived by others. It is perceived by the muggles as a form of sex work. And it is likely that he will have expectations and make demands in exchange for this money. He may want photographs. He just may want your attention and your time. That time may look like you degrading him and you making demands on him, but he'll be making demands on you to make those demands on him. And then what if you get sick of it? What if you get tired of it? What if it's not something that you particularly enjoy? You say you're more submissive sexually than dominant sexually and you want to put an end to this relationship. And then he has all of this evidence that you have been demanding money from him. He has all these text exchanges. He has all these emails. He has whatever photographs that he asked you to send him. And then he puts it all out there online, potentially. You know, this is the worst case scenario version of this. There's a lot of fin dom, fin sub stuff going on out there online. And you don't see a lot of fin dom, fin sub revenge porn online. So I think this is me more wanting to err on the side of caution and make this as safe as possible for you. And for that to be the case, if he knows who you are, you have to know who he is. It can't be that this person... This anonymous, fake LinkedIn account person knows everything about you, knows your real name, knows where you live, has your actual contact information, and you have no idea who this person is that you are quote unquote financially dominating and demanding money from. For your safety, if you enter into a FinDom, FinSub relationship with this guy, for your own safety, for your own security, for your own comfort, if he knows who you are, you have to know who he is. Hi, Dan. I am a 24-year-old gay male, and I've been with my partner uh, for three months now, and it has honestly been a wonderful three months. He is an incredible man, and I feel like we are you know, always on the same page. But recently, he told me that he 
deal is bored sometimes uh, with our relationship. Now, immediately I thought this was sexually because I have not bought him for him yet. It's not something I've done, but it's something I want to do for him. And I, we are working towards that. But when he brought this up, he brought it up sort of in, I guess, an open emotional relationship kind of way. Uh, He brought up an arrangement that one of his friends had where uh, in that relationship, they would kind of talk with other people, flirt with other people. But when he said this, I was completely crushed. I felt like, you know, this work I'd been putting into this, um, you know, it wasn't enough. So I guess my question is, is this something that you know, we can work through and might overreact to this or is this something that, you know, might rear its head in the future and become a bigger problem? It's a bad sign that he rolled this out in the way that he did. Obviously, he'd rather be in an open relationship. Instead of just putting that out there on the table, open relationships are my preferred relationship model. I would like to flirt with other people. These are adventures I'd like to have on my own, or maybe these are adventures that I would like to have with you together. He instead identified some rot at the heart of your relationship. He framed it as a deficiency in the relationship itself. At 12 weeks, at three months, he says, I'm bored. Therefore, we need to, to address my boredom, think about opening the relationship. Yeah, that's a problem. That may not be true. I can't imagine at three months he's bored. If at three months he's bored, he should end the relationship. I think he is one of those people who prefer an open relationship, but doesn't feel entitled to putting that out there as his preferred relationship model, as what he needs to make him happy. Instead, opening the relationship has to be this patch. It has to be this thing that we're going to do together to save the relationship, to address a problem in the relationship, not a thing that either of us would legitimately want on its own. It's a solution to a problem. It isn't, again, the preferred relationship model. It's a solution to a problem that he may have invented to justify the solution, to justify his preferred relationship model. If that's not the case, if he's actually bored 12 weeks in and you need to press him on this, if he's actually bored 12 weeks into a new relationship when everybody else is still in the honeymoon phase, when everyone else is still giddy with new relationship energy, if he is actually bored with you sexually, emotionally, that's not a problem an open relationship is going to solve. That may be a problem actually an open relationship is going to make worse. So you need to press him on this. Are you actually bored or are you just saying that because you want an open relationship and you don't think that I would agree to that unless the open relationship was the solution to the problem of boredom? If you're not bored, let's talk about monogamy versus non-monogamy on its own merits. If you are bored, well, obviously, I feel more strongly about you than you feel about me and perhaps we need to end this relationship before I wind up feeling more hurt than I already do. Hey Dan, 31-year-old straight guy here. After eight years playing the field and on and off relationships, I'm in a new DDLG relationship with a girl that ticks every box for me. I'm a stripper and love the attention, so I never have a hard time finding someone for fun. I've tried swinging and polyamory in previous relationships, but no matter what relationship I have, I still eventually get bored of the same partner. I love my girlfriend and want this to continue, but I can't help the urge for something new. 
I generally need to think about something new to reach orgasm. And even in porn, constantly seeking new girls in porn, getting bored of the same old. Is there something I should repress that I feel like I'm missing out on my sexual desires when I do? Or what do I do? I really want to stay in this relationship and I don't want to lie or cheat. Please help. You're 31 years old. You're old enough to know who you are, what you like, and what you need. And I think you should be honest with your girlfriend about your need for variety and your need for new. Because that can be something that you two do together. You can have an adventurous sex life that involves lots of new people, that involves lots of new experiences with a partner in crime, that she can go along on these adventures with you. There are people out there, women and men, who derive sexual satisfaction or emotional satisfaction from seeing or just even knowing that their partners are out there enjoying themselves or having new experiences. And there are also people who enjoy three ways. There are women out there who enjoy group sex. And knowing what you know about yourself, a woman who isn't interested in monogamy, who doesn't want you to be sexually exclusive and doesn't want to be sexually exclusive with you either, would be an ideal partner. That would be the kind of partner that suddenly transforms what has been a problem in your past relationships into something that makes your current relationship or with this woman, if you can make this work, or with a future woman, if you can't make it work with this woman, something that makes your future relationship stronger and more satisfying. So you say you're in a DDLG relationship, dominant daddy, little girl relationship with this woman. She's obviously sexually adventurous. If she's engaged in that kind of role play with her 31-year-old hot stripper new boyfriend, you can put out there these other facts about yourself. That you're just insatiable for new experiences, for new adventures, and you can have them with her. That you're just one of those people who constantly needs new stimuli, new experiences, new adventures, and new partners. And ultimately, you need a partner who regards your need for new adventures, new experiences, new partners as something that they find attractive about you. It's something they enjoy about you, not something that they put up with, not something they like you despite, but something they like you and want to be with you because of. Hey, Dan, I am a straight woman in her 20s. I have been dating this amazing man for a little over a year now. Everything is wonderful and great, but a couple months into our relationship, I found out that he was having an emotional relationship with a woman from his past. For many months leading up to our relationship and then many months into our relationship. When I found out, it kind of blew up as to be expected. He claims there was no physical contact and I totally believe him and he seems remorseful, but it did hurt my trust. It's been about nine months since that happened and I've been working really hard to fully trust him again because of other instances in my past that have happened, which he was aware of which just makes it so much worse for me. Um, he keeps slightly throwing me not having trust for him in my face, not to be mean, but he seems to be coming from a hurtful place when he does so. Like, it really hurts me that you don't trust me yet. And I tell him always, like, I do trust you, but it's just hard considering what happened. I want to trust him and I'm trying, but I don't know how to handle him constantly throwing, well, you should trust me 
in my face or he says, it's been X amount of months. I thought you'd be trusting me completely by now. I just don't know what to do. He's wonderful and I do trust him or I wouldn't be with him. It's just hard to be 100% full of trust for somebody who I knew broke it. Oh my God, pull the plug. End this relationship. You've been together for a year. Before you met this guy, he had some sort of connection with an ex, with this woman, where they still were emotionally entangled. They were friends, but a little bit more than friends at the end of that relationship. And you discovered three months, 12 weeks into your relationship with this guy that that emotional connection existed concurrently with the beginning of your relationship. That was nine fucking months ago, and you haven't been able to get over it somehow. There was no physical cheating. There was just, you say, an emotional affair. I'm not sure exactly what people mean by emotional affair. People use it to describe all sorts of different things. It seems to be something that an insecure person often rounds a relationship that makes them uncomfortable that their current partner has with someone else up to that. They round it up to an emotional affair. Now, sometimes an emotional affair is there's a lot of intimacy. They're sharing things with that person via text or via phone call that they're not sharing with you. They're open with that person in a way that you would expect or hope that they would be open with you. But some people use emotional affair just to mean there's any sort of friendship, any sort of connection, any sort of intimacy with this other person. And they want all intimacy, all connection to be directed at them. And that's unfair, unrealistic, selfish, that attitude that your partner can't have a strong connection or friendship with anybody else but you, particularly anybody of your same sex, that's not healthy. People need friends. People need intimates in their lives. People need someone that they can turn to, someone they can really be open with, even about their current relationship. Sometimes the person that you have to share something with, have to get it off your chest, your romantic and intimate partner isn't the right person because it's something about them that you need to process or unpack or come to a, a, a deeper understanding or resolution about. And you're not able always to do that with your intimate partner. Sometimes you got to process your feelings about your intimate partner with, you know, your primary relationship intimate partner with someone else who is also an intimate, a close personal friend. And I've just, you, you know, maybe I'm uh, being unfair to you, but I've just heard so many people throw around the term emotional affair. And then when I draw them out about it, what they're offended about is a friendship as if their boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife isn't allowed to have friends. And that kind of isolation, you know, two people, you're my romantic partner, you're my sex partner, you're my best friend to the exclusion of all others. That puts too much weight on another human being, expecting them to be all those things to you at all times. And it puts too much pressure on them to demand that no one else play that role in their life. All right, I I'm getting far afield. Nine months, for nine months since you discovered this quote-unquote emotional affair, you've been withholding your trust and your boyfriend has been walking on eggshells and you say that you trust him but you can't really trust him because he betrayed you in this way. And it just seems to me if for three quarters of the life of this relationship, you've been miserable, you've been making him miserable, you're incapable of reinvesting your trust in this person because of this quote unquote emotional affair. Why draw it out any longer? Why keep torturing him? Why keep torturing yourself and the relationship?
go find some guy who has no friends. Go find an incel in a basement somewhere who isn't going to emotionally engage with anyone because they're so emotionally damaged that by the time you found them, they'd never had an intimate in their life. They'd never had a friend. They'd never had a romantic relationship. You know, some friendships are themselves kinds of romances, platonic romances without sex. And it is possible to have those platonic romances without sex with people who are from your erotic target group. I have some friends who are gay who are very close to me, very close friends with whom I have never had sex, but we have deep and intimate quasi-romantic connections and they are sustaining and they've been very helpful to me over the course of my life. When there have been issues or problems in my relationship, I've been able to turn to those people. And if you know, my partner had demanded, my husband had demanded that I cut these people out of my life because he was so insecure that he couldn't allow me to have this sort of web of, of friends who provide me with this kind of emotional support, the damage would have been done to our relationship ultimately. So just let him have his friends or break up with him. And if you are incapable of forgiving this 12 weeks into a relationship, a quote unquote emotional affair, if you are incapable of forgiving this, I am here from the future to tell you that a long-term relationship is not in the cards for you. Because you will have to forgive and get past worse and then reinvest your trust in someone who has violated your trust in a much deeper and more profound way than your poor boyfriend violated yours. Again, when you met him, he had a close and intimate connection with an old friend. Was it even an ex? Was he supposed to transfer to you at week one or week two or week three? Pick your week of your brand new relationship all of this emotional investment, all of this connection that he'd established with others and he had a right to continue to have with others as he built an emotional connection with you that could run concurrently to those other emotional connections? No. What you're being here is manipulative and emotionally controlling and then packaging it in some wrong that he allegedly did you. You are not the wronged party here. He is. Forgive him for real. Or get out. Hey, Dan, longtime listener from the East Coast calling about a conundrum I have with one of my uh, friends. So uh, I have a friend who lives on the other side of the country. Um, we worked together for many years. Uh, I was on a work trip out to his neck of the woods uh, earlier this year. And while perusing the apps, the gay apps, I saw my friends looking for what we look for. I promptly blocked him fairly confident he didn't see that I had seen him. But here's my question. He has an upcoming wedding to a cisgendered woman. He presents as straight um, and has always been straight. He's a very right-leaning young man. Do I have any obligation to have a conversation with him about this? Or should I just stay the hell out of it? Uh, his wedding is in about two months. And I sure would hate to see a friend of mine go face first into a doomed marriage. But I also recognize that I don't know the inner workings of their marriage at all. He may claim if you confront him that his photos were stolen, but what are the odds if someone's going to steal a dude's photos and use them on a gay dating app that they would do so precisely in the location where that person happened to be pretty slim. So those were most likely his photos. You blocked him and I assume you didn't get screen grabs. So you have no, proof. You have no evidence. 
you just have, you know, what you saw with your, what he will claim lying eyes when you saw those photographs, or he will claim that there was a photo that looked like him, perhaps not him. What is your responsibility here? Well, you don't have to get involved. I imagine he's not a close friend. You're an openly gay man. You live elsewhere. He's an old friend. He's a right winger and a Republican, I assume. You don't really owe him anything. If he wants to step on a rake and enter into a bullshit sham marriage, you don't have to throw yourself in front of that car. But if you do have some feeling for him, not desire for him, but some feeling for him as a friend, you might want to say something. You may find that he's bi and his girlfriend knows, and this is perfectly all right with her. Odds are slim that that is the case, but there are certainly women out there who are with guys who've confided in them that they are bi, who don't mind their guys getting a little dick on the side. Maybe he won the girlfriend lottery and he is one of the few right-wing Republican straight presenting bisexual guys out there who has that particular girlfriend that he was able to be honest with in a way that he hasn't been honest with you, his other friends, anybody else. And yeah, won the bi guy girlfriend lottery. Again, odds seem slim. You could say something to him. What do you risk by saying something to him? Anger, denial, burning a friendship to the ground that frankly doesn't sound like much of a friendship. So you're risking very little. And it may be that when you have this confrontation, when you say something to him via text or an email or whatever, or you give him a call on the phone, that he blows up at you. He may listen to you though. You may plant a seed. You may open a door in his brain that he doesn't walk through right away. Hopefully, if he is gay and closeted, decides to walk through before he destroys this woman's life. And I think that you make that part of your, not appeal, but part of your argument that if indeed you are gay, this is terribly unfair to make another person your closet, to basically go hide inside them, requires you to hollow them out in a way that destroys their life. There are lots of women and men out there who've been married to closeted gay men and lesbians. And it can be a scalding, soul-shredding experience. People go 5, 10, 15, 20 years wondering what's wrong with them, wondering what the problem is in their relationship. And then only discovering 5, 10, 15, 20 years in, maybe two or three kids in, that the problem wasn't a problem that they could solve, that all of the work and emotional effort that they'd undertaken to, to, to repair the relationship, to repair their sex life was a waste, was a fool's errand, and they were the fool. And to do that to someone is really to do a kind of emotional and sexual violence to that person, and it is not fair. And if you know the woman he's about to marry, if that person is a friend of yours too, I think you're morally obligated to say something. I think you're morally obligated to speak up. And confrontation is hard and we all want to avoid it or step around it. But what power does he have over you? And what do you have to lose? He has no power over you. And you have nothing to lose. You also have nothing to gain. But you may do some good for him in the long run. And if he is gay and closeted or bi and closeted, you may inspire him to Break off the engagement and come the fuck out. 
You may inspire him to go to his fiance and tell her who he is and not be another one of those miserable, bisexual, closeted, married guys who are uncomfortable in their own skin 24 hours a day because they live with someone they're hiding from. So you send that text or you send that email, what do you say? You say, I was home, I was on the gay cruising apps, I saw your picture, I saw your profile, pretty sure that was you. I'm here for you. If there's something you want to talk about, if you're struggling with your sexuality and you need someone to confide in, give me a call and we can talk. And then the ball's in his court. You may hear from him, you may not. You may hear from him, but not for five years. But he will know that if he does need someone that he can call, he can call you. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they published for a little segment we call What You Got. Joining me for this, what you got, Dr. Morgan Philbin, assistant professor in the Department of Sociomedical Sciences at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. Hey, Dr. Philbin, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Uh, I'm really good. So you did some research. I have no idea what it is. What you got for us? (laughs) Yeah. So um, thanks so much for asking about it. So we were actually interested in two separate things. So we started by looking at marijuana use um, overall among the U.S. population, particularly among lesbian, gay, and bisexual individuals. And we were really interested in seeing if there were differences at all in use. And we've seen in smaller studies that there are particularly differences between bisexuals and heterosexuals. And so we wanted to see whether that held up in the study that we did. And one of the main things that came out was really disparate um, levels of use between bisexual women and heterosexual women. So as an example, um, past year use, about 40% of bisexual women reported any past year marijuana use compared to 10% of heterosexual women, so about a four times difference. Um, And for daily use as well, about 10% of bisexual women reported daily marijuana use, which was about seven times higher. Um, We saw similar patterns for disordered use and medical use. And so one of the things that once we saw that, we wanted to step back and say, okay, we've seen other researchers. So for example, someone in my department named Mark Hatzenbuehler has done a lot of work around policies that um, target sexual minority individuals. So things like marriage equality laws and bullying and has found that, you know, people in states that are more supportive and have some more supportive policies have lower levels of substance use. And so we wanted to step back and say, okay, what might be these other factors that are driving this? And one of the things that we wanted to look at were whether there was a difference between people living in states with certain marijuana policies um, and whether use differed by that, because this policy should not actually have a differential impact depending on who someone is, right? They're not designed to target specific people. Wait, wait, wait. I, um, wait, 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 wait yeah. Can we slow down for one second? So, so you found yeah. that, 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 that queer people were likelier to use pot than heterosexual people, but also right. found that bisexuals, particularly bisexual women, were likelier yeah. to use pot than heterosexual women and likelier than bisexual men to use pot? Yeah, which was really surprising because in all other research we found among heterosexuals, men always have higher use. Like that's sort of the standard. It's just kind of taken as this given Mm -hmm. um, that men tend to have higher levels of substance use, particularly with marijuana. 
and yet that was not the case. And then, you know, I'm a pothead myself. It seems like the next mm-hmm. move is to pathologize pot use and assume that this is bad and that there must be some cultural stressor that explains why bisexual women are likelier to use pot than straight women or heterosexuals. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the main things that sort of personally that I want to push against is I don't want this to come across as any sort of pathologizing. Like, I don't have any issue. Like, to me, especially past year use, like, you know, I mean, that could be once and that could be 350 times, right? I mean, <laughs> that to me is not something that's problematic at all, right? And uh-huh. I mean, like, we joke about it. Like, my grandmother's 97 and my uncle brings her pot brownies. Like, that's not problematic mm-hmm. use, right? And I think that trying to think about that that's not the problem. What was more worrisome for me was the fact that the disordered use was so different. And, and what, what do you mean so by disordered when, use? The disordered use is what? So it's the, from the sort of medical definition, the DSM, so the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, has these criteria, and it's basically if it starts interfering with your daily life, right? So if you have trouble going to work every day, if it affects your relationships, things like that. So they have a set that will consider if you have a marijuana use disorder. So there's a lot of research out there that shows that queer people are likelier to you know, smoke more, abuse drugs and alcohol at, at higher rates. And often that's mm-hmm. attributed to you know, the, the, the cultural stressors of, uh, of homophobia mm-hmm. and people self-medicating. You know, right. to to address their their unhappiness or their misery, and, and the idea is mm-hmm. that you know if more people are out and, and comfortable with who with who they are and are receiving more support from their communities or their culture, they should be less likely than to abuse drugs and alcohol. Is that borne out by any research that you're aware of? Yeah, it is actually, and that's one of the things that we saw. And this is actually a separate study that I was a part of where. We were looking at, there's a researcher that created something called a policy liberalism index. And basically, she put together policies that, um, for which like liberals and conservatives differ. So it was looking at things like abortion and gun rights and tax um, progressivity. And we found that people living in more liberal states, and this was not by sexual orientation, this was just in general, but people living in more liberal states tend to use more marijuana, but they have less disordered use. So it suggests that there is something at this, you know, the sort of community level norms around stigma and perceived, you know, access and wrongfulness that would bear that out. That basically it's nothing inherent at the individual level. It's the environment that we're living in, right, that's driving a lot of this. So, oh, God, wow, this is kind of blowing my mind that, that bisexual women use pot at, at, at such a greater rate. And it was like, what was your sample size? Is, do we have a statistically significant sample size here? Are you confident? I'm sure you're, you've published the, the, the report. You must be confident in your data. <laughs> yeah. So we actually ended up um, combining three years of data in order to get a big enough sample size to start to actually make claims. So the overall sample of this is about 120,000 people. Obviously, not all of them are sexual minority individuals, right? Like, they're not all queer. Um, but in order to get a sample, and the data that we used is weighted at the national level. So that means we can actually say that this is generalizable to the U.S. population. So what's your hypothesis here? Why are bisexual women likelier to have disordered use of marijuana? I mean, I think it's some of what you mentioned before. I think that it is partly because of these sort of broader social stressors that are happening. And I think for a lot of bisexual women, they're facing, you know, sort of multiple marginalized identities, Mm -hmm. right? They're women and they're bisexual. So they're sort of, you know, they can get stigma discrimination from the heterosexual community, from the queer community. And we've seen this a lot that bisexual individuals, whether men or women, 
tend to face additional stressors. One of the additional stressors that a lot of bisexuals face is that they are not out to their intimate partners. Mm-hmm. And, yes. you know, to live a life in the closet, you know, we used to talk about how closet mm-hmm. cases drank themselves to death. It was, you know, yeah. it, you know, meant decades ago when I was first coming out, it was a mm-hmm. cliche that you would meet these kind of alcoholic closet cases who would only roll into the bars when they were drunk enough. And it was kind of pathetic uh, that, that people could only allow themselves to really be themselves if they were fucked up. Um, I don't want to pathologize bisexual identities. And, you know, a lot of gays and lesbians come out because we reach a point where we have no choice, right? And yeah. if I could have sailed along as a 15-year-old and an 18-year-old without telling my family I was gay, I might have. But I, yeah. I had to face up to it because I had no choice. There were going to be no girlfriends. There was going to be no wife. There was going right. to be no, like, women yeah. I was dating anymore. And I kind of had to, like, either tell the truth or cut my family out of my life. But it does seem like for many bisexuals, it's possible, you know, if you're going to, yeah. if you're a bisexual person who's predominantly attracted to opposite sex partners, if you're hetero romantic but bisexual, it is possible to mm-hmm. avoid that conversation, to avoid coming out, which again, I would have done when I was 18 if I could have, but I couldn't. And so I right. didn't. Yeah. Um, and so you, is that part of the hypothesis that there are, you know, the more disordered use because people are not out? And maybe coming out yeah. is the solution to the to the disordered use. People would be less reliant on not using pot. I'm a pot user. I don't think all use is abuse, but abusing it. Less likely to self-medicate right. it with to treat their misery or their isolation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think that – so there are a couple of things. I think a lot of the identity concealment oftentimes is easier for women. And I say that because I think our society more broadly has – much more rigid gender norms around men and gender performance. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a little bit more of a spectrum of women are less likely to be called out just by, you know, or have assumptions made about them, um, which can be problematic because like you said, right, there can be this allowance for concealment, but that also can make these sort of constant expectations of rejection or am I going to be called out and what am I going to do? And I think that's where a lot of these tensions manifest themselves. And I think one of the things that we want to do in the next paper is look at this by age, because I do think, like you said, right, there's going to be a difference of people who are, say, you know, 18 to 25 and are just coming out in a very different world Mm -hmm. than people who did a generation ago. And older people, I think the way women are socialized, the way female desire is controlled and really almost extinguished in many women, a a lot of women who I know are bi didn't fully realize, you know, not even begin, Mm -hmm. you know, to take the step toward accepting. You can't take that first step toward accepting yourself if you haven't realized who you are. And it's much more common, I think, to to the female experience to not come into a full Mm -hmm. sense of who you are erotically or sexually until you're in your 20s or even 30s or older Mm -hmm. in some cases, because female sexuality is just so policed and regulated. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's that and people just didn't feel like they were allowed to. If there was such an expectation of you need to, you know, have this sort of 2.4 kids and a white picket fence that, you know, that it's not until that sort of part of their. I mean, we I, and this is obviously anecdotal, but I think a lot of us have family friends who, you know, women who didn't come out until their 50s or 60s because finally they were like, oh, I now can. Right. I have figured out who I am and I feel like I'm allowed to. And now I can smoke pot for all the right reasons. Right, exactly. Although, given that I'm from California, it's now legal for them. Right, so it's a whole <laughs> different like 
you know, but yeah, I think that that's very true. And then they can do it in non-disordered ways because also the norms around it are changing so much, um, I think, in more liberal states. So one last question in a study like this, you know, you're making this mm-hmm. distinction between pot use and disordered use. Uh, yeah. How do you parse for that in the data? How do you figure out who's using pot for all the right reasons because they're 97 years old uh, or they're 17 right. years old and they want to, you know, get stoned and watch 90 Day Fiance all night and, and people who are using pot for the wrong reasons? How do you tease that out in the survey or in the data? Right. That's a really good question. So the data that we used actually are national level data. So we didn't write the question. So we are beholden to what is being asked. So all we know is the frequency of use. And then we know based on the questions, whether, you know, per the diagnostic statistical manual, it is considered disordered use. I mean, we know if people used it to say, to get high, to relax, but we have very crude categories, Mm -hmm. right? So we can go through and see on a basic level, you know, are you using it to have fun? Are you using it on a night out with friends? And for the most part, that's what it is. And it's not something that people are using in a problematic way. But a significant chunk of, of all people, not just bi people are, we're not trying to pathologize pot use or bisexuality no. here, but a significant chunk of people do use pot for the wrong reasons. Well, it's interesting. So the, the percentage of people that meet that category of disordered use it's only 0.6% of heterosexual women. So it is really low. Mm-hmm. It's 2% of heterosexual men versus about 5% of bisexual men and women. So it's, you know, it is still overall quite low regardless of sexual orientation, right? Like I do want to make that point that most use is not disordered, but there is a strong difference by sexual orientation. Yeah, that's a factor of what, 10 or more? Yeah, uh, for women, it's about eight times. Yeah, it's like 0.5. Yeah, you're right. It's almost 10, which to me says more about like us just like not being kind human beings to others, right? <laughs> like it's nothing they're doing. Like we're the assholes, you know? Um, and I just want to make that point that it is not them, it's us, right? Like we are not creating a supportive environment for people to feel comfortable like coming out and being who they are. Dr. Morgan Philbin, assistant professor in the Department of Sociomedical Sciences at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. Where can people who want to read the study find it? And, and what's the name of the study? So the title of the research was State-Level Marijuana Policies and Marijuana Use and Marijuana Use Disorder Among a Nationally Representative Sample of Adults in the U.S., Sexual Identity and Gender Matter. Um, and I think the best way is to reach out to me. I'm happy to send it to anybody who wants it because, yeah. Otherwise, it's, you can't access it straight from the journal website without paying, and I don't want people to have to do that. And if people want to reach out directly to you, how do they do that? They can send me an email if they want. So it's mp3243 at columbia.edu because they can't give us regular email addresses. Um, or just Google my name and the email address should pop up under Columbia's website and reach out to me directly. Dr. Philbin, thank you. That was a really fascinating conversation, and congratulations on the new research. Great. Thank you so much. Hi, Dan. I am a 24-year-old cis woman from the Pacific Northwest, and my question was about, up until this point, I felt like it's pretty normal for women to not orgasm during sex, like in their teens and even like in their early 20s, just from like having less experienced partners and stuff. But I'm kind of at the point where I feel like I've slept with different people of different backgrounds and genders and ages and stuff. And I'm pretty sure that I just can't come from getting eaten out. And 
I don't like use direct stimulation when I masturbate either. And I just feel like all of the resources out there are really about direct stimulation and all of the representation is about that. Um, And so I'm just wondering, like, is it normal for people with vaginas to not be able to come from actually touching the clit? And I'm also wondering, I've heard you talk about guys kind of masturbating too hard or like in a certain way. And then like, I think you call it the death grip or something. And then like having to retrain themselves kind of to orgasm in a different way. And I'm wondering if that can happen with women as well. If like, maybe I've just been masturbating one way for so long, but it would be possible to change it. So I don't know. I just wanted to know if you knew anyone who maybe had some more resources or information about alternate ways of orgasming with clitorises. Death grip syndrome is when a guy jacks off with a clenched fist, a fist that is bony and hard and clenched in a way that an anus mouth or vagina can't quite clench. And someone who masturbates, masturbates roughly in that way, a dude who masturbates and masturbates roughly in that way for years and years and years before attempting partnered sex often finds that the transition to partnered sex is difficult, that they can't climax during partnered sex because the mouth, the anus, the vagina can't do what the clenched fist can do. Maybe they're masturbating dry that whole time with a clenched fist and just really sandpapering away at their nerve endings. There is something that's sort of analogous for, for females, for, for people with vaginas around death grip syndrome, but it's usually about a position. It's a, a woman who began masturbating by humping a pillow or by you know humping the mattress in a very particular position and has climaxed always in that position. You know, face down on top of a pillow, thigh and leg and pelvic floor muscles and abdominal muscles clenched in such a way and all of those things reinforcing each other to to feel absolutely necessary. All those sense memories around that clenching. And then moving into a different position, involving a partner, involving penetrative sex doesn't work for them. The guy with death grip syndrome, they can and have and and heard from many people who followed my advice and, and did retrain the dick. It involves something that's a, you know, a tough road for some guys, which is stop masturbating. Stop using your fist like that. Don't have penetrative sex for 10 minutes and then revert to masturbation in the last 30 seconds, revert to the death grip in order to get off. Have penetrative sex. Enjoy sex with your partner. If you don't climax, you don't climax, period. And eventually your dick will get so desperate it will shove a new neural pathway all the way up to your goddamn reptile brain that you may start coming. I say give it six months, guys, who have this problem. If after six months that new neural pathway is not carved, it may never be carved. And this just may be the way your dick works. And it's not that death grip ruined your dick. It's that death grip is what your dick requires. But you can't know that until you tease it out in in the way that I described. Same thing for a lot of women who have the like pillow humping thing. You got to get in a different position. You got to try something different. This is not the problem, however, that you've described. You have a very sensitive glance. The exposed part of your clitoris is very sensitive. There are guys out there who don't like to get blowjobs because the sensation of that kind of stimulation to the head of their dick is too intense. You know, the rough tongue running over the glands is too intense. It's an unpleasurable sensation. What you describe sounds very similar and it's perfectly legitimate. 
deeper stimulation, penetrative sex, a vibrator in your vaginal canal is also stimulating clitoral tissues. Your clit isn't just the glands. And you may be one of those people who direct stimulation to the glands. It's too intense. It's unpleasurable. It won't get you there. You need stim to the shaft. You can see this more clearly with dudes. There are guys who masturbate by basically passing the glands of their penis through the palm of their hand over and over. And they sort of jack off by working the like last third of their dick. And then you can watch guys on Pornhub and elsewhere on the internet or guys in person, if you're lucky enough, who masturbate by running their hand up and down the shaft. And they're not really touching the glands of their dick. And those guys are a little bit like you. Touching the glands doesn't work for you. Touching the shaft, which in your case, in a female person's case, is buried inside the body, stimulating the shaft, which is sometimes described or called indirect clitoral stimulation. It's not indirect because most of the clitoris is inside the body. It is still clitoral stimulation. And it's the kind of clitoral stimulation that gets you off. And there is nothing wrong or nothing broken about your body that direct clitoral stimulation isn't your jam, doesn't work for you, doesn't get you there. You know how to get yourself there. One last thing I want to address in your call is this idea that it's normal for women and girls not to orgasm during sex, particularly in their teens and 20s. Yeah, that is normal for women and girls who are having sex with men or boys. When you look at the research, as Peggy Orenstein did in Girls and Sex, Young women and girls who are having sex with female partners, bisexual girls who have same-sex partners, lesbian girls who have same-sex partners, they climax during sex. So young women and girls are capable of climaxing during sex. One of the things that seems to help get them there is a partner who is invested in their pleasure, which many young straight girls unfortunately don't have yet. Hey, Dan. Long-time listener. 26-year-old heterosexual female South African. I've been seeing a guy for about four months. He's 10 years older than me. When I first met him, I could tell he really liked me. I knew he was married, but he pursued me for a while. Eventually, I agreed to go out with him. We ended up having an amazing time, and we've been seeing each other ever since. It's been incredible. The other day, he said he wants to tell his wife about me, that he's met someone and explain to her that I'm sort of a companion to him. That being said, he doesn't want to end his marriage. He maybe just wants to open it up. I don't know how to feel about him telling her. I don't know if I'm comfortable with this. I know it's not my business whether he wants to tell her or not, but he doesn't want to keep me a secret anymore. Do you think this is a good idea? What advice could you give me and... What advice could you give him bringing up this conversation with her? Does he want to introduce you or roll you out to the wife as quote unquote sort of a companion or someone he's romantically involved with as not sort of a girlfriend, but actually a girlfriend. And it's not about opening up the marriage. He's already opened up the marriage unilaterally. It's about coming clean to the wife that he has opened up the marriage and then she gets to decide what she wants to do. And hopefully she's in a position to make a free choice, by which I mean hopefully she's not so economically dependent on him that she has no choice but to agree to allow him to have you, to have this girlfriend. You're in a better position than I to assess what their marriage is like, what that relationship is like. We've talked a lot on the show about the concept of poly under duress. There are a lot of people who open up a relationship because – their partner 
insists or demands that the relationship be opened as a condition of that person who's doing the insisting and demanding as a condition of that person staying in the relationship. And sometimes people agree to allow their partner to see other people or to continue to see the person that they've been seeing behind their back because the prospect of ending the marriage is emotionally daunting or financially impossible because the prospect of ending the marriage is emotionally daunting or financially impossible. It's a shit move. It's a shit thing to do. But a lot of people have done it. The issuing an ultimatum and then putting their partner in the position of having to decide whether they're going to agree to these new unilaterally dictated terms about the shape of their relationship. If you move in poly circles, if you meet a lot of people in open relationships, you will meet, you will meet a great many people who are initially poly under duress, who are issued an ultimatum about opening the relationship and stayed in the relationship and were angry and upset about it and eventually embraced openness, embraced polyamory. Backing way up for a second and zooming out for a second, there's what he wants and then there's what his wife wants, which was a monogamous commitment, was for him to honor that monogamous commitment, which he has violated. And then there's what you want and you don't lay out what it is you want. Do you want him to be honest with his wife? Would you prefer to be the girlfriend, not just in private, but the girlfriend in public? Would you want to be in some sort of acknowledged secondary partner kind of poly triad? Would you want to not be on the download? You want to be brought in from the cold? If those are things you want, then him telling his wife about you and being honest with his wife retroactively, being honest with her now, being honest with her going forward, all that has to happen for you to be, for you to come in from the cold. But you don't say what you want. And so what I kind of get the sense is that there's a guy and this guy wants what he wants, which is he wants his wife, he wants his marriage, he wants his family, and he wants his girlfriend too. And he's in a sense issuing ultimatums to both of those women. He's going to go tell his wife that he wants to open up their marriage. In fact, he wants it so badly he's already opened up their marriage and he's going to tell his girlfriend that he's telling his wife. And I think he needs to consult with you about what it is you want. And you need to perhaps consult with yourself about what it is that you want. Clearly you're fine dating a married man. Are you still fine dating that married man? If his wife knows about you, the answer is yes. Then perhaps this is, for the best. Perhaps this is what you want to, but you might want to do a little introspection and get some clarity on that. Hi, Dan. I am a 31 year old gay man from the Philadelphia area. There's this guy that I'm really into who goes to my gym and, you know, I feel like we've been giving each other kind of, you know, flirtatious eye glances, but you know, everyone's looking at everyone in the gym. I feel like guys look at guys, straight guys look at guys just to compare themselves. And so I'm having trouble distinguishing if it's a flirtatious glance or, or not. And I kind of want to ask him out. I'm, I'm newly single and, um, you know, I've had my eyes on him for a while and I, I think he's had eyes on me, but, you know, I don't want to ask him out and then him not be gay and then just be awkward because we see each other at this gym all the time not really a gay gym, although, you know, I'm in Philadelphia, so everyone's a little gay here. So I just want to know your thoughts about how do you ask someone out who you're not sure of their orientation in a setting that you might see them quite often, and how do you distinguish kind of um, flirtatious glances versus just, you know, how big are your biceps compared to mine? Flirtatious glances, like pornography, you know it when you see it. 
you're going to have to take a risk. You're just going to have to go up to this guy and engineer a moment where you can go up to him and have a more extended interaction. Go offer to spot him. Go up to him and ask him to spot you. Maybe put a little extra weight on the bench press so you can't handle it on your own and ask him to come spot you and then you can have a brief conversation. And in that moment, you can assess, you can better assess whether he's making eye contact with you across the gym because he wants his biceps to look more like yours or if he's making eye contact with you across the gym because he wants to shove his dick in your mouth. But then you can make a better decision about whether to ask him out. It shouldn't be that hard. And yes, there's always a chance when you ask somebody out that they won't be interested. Yeah, he could be straight. He could be partnered and just likes to look around at the gym and enjoys checking you out but can't actually go out with you. But there's only one way to find out what the case might be. And that's for someone, for you or for him. But I'm telling you because you called to take a risk and ask the other one out. Hi, Dan. I'm 26. I live in New Orleans, Louisiana. I just had a question for you. I was dating this guy for the past nine months and things were going great. He was a little controlling and I'm very sex positive and he claimed to be Catholic and seemed to have little rules as far as me wearing short skirts or accusing me of being too friendly with guys, which I know is a red flag, but I really liked him and I didn't think that things could escalate to where they did. Um, I found out that he has a whole entire another girlfriend that he's been dating for four year, years long distance. He has multiple other women. I mean, like eight, nine other women in his life that I found out about. We spent almost all of our time together. We worked the same hours. I cut things off and I just, the whole thing is really messed with my head because we work right next to each other. Literally, we're both in the service industry. We both work on Bourbon Street. His establishment's on the same block as mine. And I've gotten to the point where I've had to file a restraining order because he was coming around my house and my apartment and threatening me. And I just, the whole thing doesn't make sense to me. If you cared so much about me, then why would you do all the things you did and lie to me? When I'm a very open-minded person, we could have had an open relationship if that's what he wanted. So I guess I just wanted to maybe get your opinion on it. Uh, He keeps walking by my job with different girls and trying to make me jealous. And I don't know, it's really starting to get to me. I'm getting really sad. I mean, it's been about two months since we broke up. I just wish he would stop trying to hurt my feelings. It's really working. I just wanted your opinion, I guess. He didn't care about you. He only cared about himself. And he didn't want an open relationship because having an open relationship, an honest, ethical, non-monogamous relationship, wouldn't just free him to date multiple people, something he'd already allowed himself to do, but would allow for you to date multiple people, would allow for you to have more than one man in your life. And he wasn't okay with that. He isn't okay with that. He wants to possess and control many women and doesn't want those women to have the same freedom or license that he allows himself, that he enjoys for himself because he is an asshole and a piece of shit and you are well fucking rid of him. The lesson you need to take going forward, dating other guys is when you see that big fucking red flag and the controlling shit, him telling you what you could wear, how short your skirts could be, how to conduct yourself in public, him at just a few months into the relationship, basically accusing you of cheating on him, this kind of weaponized jealousy, 
that red flag, you say that you ignored that red flag because you really liked him. Of course, he had good qualities. Obviously, someone who's stringing a half a dozen or more women along and has two girlfriends who don't know about each other has charisma. And that's the challenge. You know, often it's our friends who point out the red flags because we like somebody and we are blinded to them and we don't see them or we don't want to see them or we don't want to think about the implications of that red flag because we want this person to be who we hoped they were when we met them, someone we could like, someone who could like us, someone we could love, someone who loved us. And so we ignore what we desperately don't want to be true. And you ignored something that going forward, you were going to promise me you will never ignore again. The behaviors he exhibited early in the relationship, policing your clothing, accusing you of basically what he was doing behind your back, that shit never gets better in time. That shit only gets worse in time. Not only is that a red flag for manipulative, controlling, emotionally abusive, it is often a red flag for physically abusive. The guy who thinks he has a right to tell you how short your skirt can be because other guys might look at your legs. The guy who thinks he can do that to you at three months is the guy who slaps or punches you at two years because you looked at someone, because you talked to a male friend at work on your phone or in person on the street. So when you see that red flag in the future, when somebody is controlling in the way that this guy was controlling, you are not going to go, oh, but I like him. You're not going to put on the other end of the scales his good qualities because that behavior, controlling, jealous behavior, outweighs any good qualities a person might either legitimately bring to the table or be enough of a sociopath that they can fake to keep you in the relationship so that they can continue to control you and abuse you over the long term. You got a restraining order. Some places, someone having a restraining order against you would cost you your job if your job was next door. You might want to follow up with whatever authority you went to to get that restraining order, get his ass fired, get him out of the establishment next door to your establishment permanently. Short of that or failing that, when he walks by with some other girl and you feel jealous, you need to argue with yourself at that moment. He can't make you feel jealous if you don't still want to be with him on some level. You need to reach in to your brain and yank out whatever circuits are telling you that you wish you could still be with him because of those good qualities, because of whatever it was about him that made you really like him. You need to reach in and yank that shit out because he can't make you jealous if you didn't want to still be with him. And he is not someone you want to be with or should want to be with. It might help you do that if you contemplated what this relationship would look like if you'd stayed together two years down the road where his controlling and jealous behavior had gotten worse and worse and worse. Or it had become not just emotionally abusive but physically abusive, which is not guaranteed but highly likely. This kind of controlling, jealous behavior is predictive of physically abusive behavior. And rather than feeling a twinge of jealousy because you would still like to be with him like the girl walking down the street with him now – you will feel bad for that girl who is with him now. You will feel perhaps a twinge of empathy and concern for the girl he's with now, but not jealousy, not a desire to be the girl he's with now because he is not the guy you thought he was when you met him. He's a piece of shit 
and you are well rid of him. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Matt McCauley tweets, played trivia tonight in Lindsey Graham's hometown. Enjoyed hearing the MC announce our team name each round to a packed bar, Team ITMFA. Thank you, at fake Dan Savage. No, thank you, Matt. And I hope some people in that crowded bar took the time to ask you what ITMFA stands for. JT the girl tweets, Dan, that straight guy from episode 674 with a newly open to outside oral relationship doesn't probably need to be on prep, but he should get vaccinated against HPV and he should be the one to suggest it to his wife. I want to second that. That is great advice. The HPV vaccine prevents cancers. Everyone should get vaccinated, get your kids vaccinated. And if you weren't vaccinated as a kid, it is never too late to go get vaccinated. It can still help. And finally, Liberal Gyne tweets, rolled the dice, moved the mice. Was that a mousetrap reference at Fake Dan Savage? Please don't give me any more reasons to love you. Hashtag Yahtzee, hashtag mousetrap. Yes, indeed, that was a mousetrap reference. All right. If you want me to read one of your tweets on a future episode of Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hi, this is for the caller in episode 674 who's not sure about following up with the girl with two fingers on her hand. Um, I have a similar little hand situation going on. And I'm just going to say, dude, leave her alone. Uh, It's highly unlikely she thinks that's the reason things didn't go any further. And it would just be weird at this point, especially since you're still connected on social media. Like, it's really probably okay. And she doesn't think that. Uh, Also, I noticed in your call that you were like, oh, I was on so many drugs, and that's why I didn't notice her hand at first. Lots of sober people don't notice my hand right off the bat, even after several times of hanging out. And it's perfectly normal. It's it's really okay. So, yeah, so leave her alone. It's, It's fine. And just, you know, get over it. It's okay. Hi, I'm calling about the man in episode 674 who wanted to talk through the semantics of going on prep and having a more open marriage. Some of the things that he said, like he just sounded really naive and misinformed. He said things like there's female glory holes and contracting any form of STI with a condom is like getting hit by a bus and struck by lightning. And he also said, if you treat HIV, it's not that big of a deal. I just... This man needs to do a lot more research before he opens his marriage and embarks on this adventure. Um, He needs to know that there's some actual risks out there. Like, I mean, even with a condom, it's so easy to catch HPV. There's a hundred strains of HPV. Does he even know that? Does he know that like almost 80% of the population has one of these and some of them cause cancer, like of the cervix and the throat. He's talking about having kids and he could get that. And then like, is he, is he mentally prepared for the possibility of getting that or herpes one in six people have herpes. It's skin to skin contact. He just sounded so naive and like excited to open the marriage without a fucking clue as to what that's actually going to look like. Um, final, you know, honestly, he needs to have these discussions with his wife. They need to go into this understanding what the actual risks are. I mean, HIV is treatable, but if you talk to anybody who has it, I am sure they would not agree with his statement of it's not that big of a deal. And HPV, it's easy to just dismiss HPV. Um, It sucks. I have genital warts. I used condoms. I only had four partners, and I still got genital warts. I mean, would his wife be okay if he came home with genital warts? And then would she be okay with getting them? Because that's what would happen. He just needs to have a way bigger conversation with his wife and read a lot more because he sounds honestly like he just he's excited about the prospects, but he has no fucking clue of reality. Hi, Dan. Just calling about the woman who was saying that she was telling her friends that when the guy licked the cum off of her, they were all squicked out. Uh, you might have forgot to mention that also, you know, once body fluids are 
off of their out of the body, they're kind of gross. So like kissing somebody, great, but spit, no thank you. And you know, same thing with cum. I'm happy to give a blowjob and swallow, but once it's out of the body and on something else, I don't want to lick it off. And my, I'm going to make the squicky face when somebody mentions that, and it's totally not homophobia. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. This week, my dirty little porn film festival, Hump, will be in New Orleans. And the very best of Hump will be in Brooklyn. Go to humpfilmfest.com for more info and for tickets to the shows in either city. And tickets are selling fast for next weekend, Savage Love Live in Toronto and Savage Love Live in Boston. Both shows are about to sell out. If you want to get a ticket before they're all gone, go to savagelovecast.com slash events for tickets. And we will see you in Boston and Toronto. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Philbin on Twitter at Morgan underscore Philbin, P-H-I-L-B-I-N. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk you and Nancy. We'll both be back at you next week in an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for having